I think it is one of the more interesting things, at least for me to think about here, is social issues trickling down to profound, fundamental level impacts on wildlife populations. Welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. I'm Billy Brown. And I'm Tony Carroza Daryl. Robin Arizari. Um, and even though we heard Robin a couple episodes ago for World Sparrow Day, Robin, tell us what you do. I'm the Philadelphia Watershed Coordinator for the Tuckany Ticone Frankfurt Watershed Partnership. It's an urban creek that runs through North Philly, and uh, we're doing our best to clean it up and get the community engaged and excited about it and do their part. Robin also is an urban birder extraordinaire and <laughs> an, extraordinaire. Urban, an urban sketcher. Um, Robin. Uh, Sketchy urban birder. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> that guy lurking around the parking lot with the binoculars. <laughs> he's me. really looking at goals. No trash um, coats. He is like our best friend on Twitter. Um, he coined the term Herp in the Hood. It was near and dear to my herping heart, not just the birding heart of Tony. He's just a sweet dude. Yeah, he's a very nice guy. Very handsome. Dashing he, even. He you whittles. can't see it right now, but but I'll confirm that. Yeah. <laughs> he whittles. It's awesome. Yep. We have one of his beautiful spoons. That's right. Before we get too into it, I always want to remind everybody, please do tell us how much you love us on your favorite podcasting app. That could be something like SoundCloud. iTunes. iTunes, Stitcher. Please like us and... Leave a comment. The wayward souls who do not know that we exist, they're out there hungering for good wildlife podcasts, maybe even good urban wildlife podcasts. You rate us, you will help bring them to us and help satisfy another soul out in podcast land. I'm going to give a shout out to uh, two wildlife themed podcasts that I enjoy. In Defense of Plants. Yep, I just listened to that. I listened to their um, to an orchid episode. and That's a fantastic one. Yeah. And... Eyes on conservation. There you go. Um, not specifically urban focused, but I mean, we know we like wildlife, even if it's not in the city. This is true, because this episode we get into sort of one theme, but two medium-sized animals. Um, not quite megafauna, because I think it's a hundred pounds is megafauna. Then a boar could be megafauna. Sure, a boar definitely could be. Boar definitely. Caracals not so much. They're a little bit lighter. Some meso and megafauna. Um, so the, the and both of them are kind of like stories of the park next door that the, your your local critters come out of, and then come into your neighborhood or hang around your neighborhood. Um, and both of them are good stories about how um, how critters that leave a park are coming out not just because we're next to the park, but because there's something here that they want. And like thinking back to the World Sparrow Day episode. We were just talking about how the sparrows, <clears throat> even though they might be right next to a park and just a few yards away from the interior of a park, don't necessarily venture into the forest because it's just not their habitat and it's not where they want to go. Um, so I think, so a lot of times I feel like I see the narrative about, oh, well, we built this suburb, we built this city in their territory, and say, they're still coming here. We built this city. We built this city on... We don't have anything that rhymes with rock and roll. 
insert. We'll work it out later. Insert. Urban boys. No. Um, it work. doesn't work. Yeah. Okay. We'll I, just, I just, by the way, a megaphone is either 100 pounds or 100 kilograms, depending on the world. Which means that you guys, I guess, would be megafauna. Yes. In by one measurement, but definitely not. <laughs> but I would be. So it isn't just that like we happen to build in a place. If you build in a place and the species doesn't can't live with us, it doesn't want to be near us. They're not going to be there, even though if we just built there. Um, so animals and plants, whatever, come into our our habitats because we have resources there, whether it's space or food or nesting sites, what have you, um, that appeal to them. And so both of these are situations where whether you're talking about the boars or you're talking about the caracals, they're hanging around humans, especially urban humans, because there's something here that they want. We're going to start with the Urban Caracal Project. And so this is one that, like, dude, you brought this up early. Yeah. We've been trying to land this interview for a while. I think I was just doing Google searches for urban wildlife stuff. Yeah. You know? And it just it came up. and Or maybe I saw something on Facebook. And, you know, I found about it on the Facebook page, and I'm just like, this is the coolest thing ever. Now, this is one animal that I would absolutely love to have in my cuddle pile. My name is Laurel Serias, and I am a postdoctoral researcher with University of Cape Town and University of California in Santa Cruz. And I am the project coordinator of the Urban Caracal Project, which I'm working on with Cape Leopard Trust, which is a nonprofit in South Africa. I did my PhD on bobcats in particular, and then I collaborated on the mountain lion project that's in Los Angeles. Um, so I have had a lifelong aspiration to study wild cats, first of all. And, um, and I knew when I was young, like around 10 years old or something, that I would end up getting my PhD and in terms of Promoting the conservation of wildlife, I would do it through research. I decided in high school that it seems like there's not much urban wildlife research that's happening, and that would be an interesting way to examine how are the human impact on wildlife populations and especially wildcats. I wanted to do a study on urbanization in another part of the world that wasn't affluent United States because most of the work on urbanization and wildlife has been done in those kinds of areas, as I understand it, to my knowledge. And I think it's hard to make generalizations about how urbanization does affect wildlife when the studies are so focused in um, a part of the world that can afford um, the luxury of wildlife. And I've started to think about wildlife as a commodity and luxury item that it's often people who are well-to-do who appreciate it um, and have the opportunity to appreciate it. And in Los Angeles, you know, there's, it's an affluent area and people can afford to really care about protection of wildlife and prioritizing conservation of wildlife. But you come to a place like South Africa where there's social struggles that outweigh, you know, outweigh the priority of wildlife conservation, then you start to think about things differently. And I wanted that exposure. And so I ended up coming to South Africa and I thought the caracals were really interesting. I thought 
The landscape's really interesting. I like Mediterranean ecosystems as well. In terms of climate, it's great, but in terms of the vegetation, it is super difficult to navigate. Like in, in Los Angeles, the chaparral, and here, Fainbos. It is just so physically taxing to try to make your way through the bush off trail that it takes people who are extremely fit to do the work, which actually has made it more difficult for me to find people that can stay on the project because it requires extremely high levels of fitness. Could you just give a quick rundown of like what a caracal is, its size, its kind of what it looks like and what, and what it feeds on in yeah, so caracals are a medium-sized lynx-like cat, very similar to bobcats so, or, or Canadian lynx in terms of their ecology um, and sort of their morphology, the way their body looks. So they have a short tail, they have pointy ears, um, and they're about, we're seeing in Table Mountain at least, that they're around um 13 12 to 13 kilograms the adult males and around eight to nine kilograms the females yeah they they're quite distinctive and their ear tufts they have to be the most dramatic that there are of any of the lynx-like cats and what's cool to me is that when you say bobcat in the states a lot of people at least when i was working in los angeles didn't know what those were and they often confuse if they saw one, they would think it was a mountain lion. But here, people may not know the name Caracal, but you say the wild cat that has the really pointy ears with the hair on the end, and like everyone knows what that is. And so in that way, it's kind of rewarding because it means that people around the city take an interest in that animal. And, um, and so that's why my logo has has the profile of the cat, but the ear tufts are, are exaggerated or very obvious, is so that people know what, what the project is and what we're studying. Um, similar to bobcats and, and lynx, they are very generalized predators. So they don't specialize on any one kind of prey. Um, and so what we've seen them eating predominantly when we use their radio collar data to investigate their data, uh, their diet, is that we see them feeding on a lot of birds. And as well, we're finding um, that they're eating a variety of small mammals that are present in, in these ecosystems. So like mole rats we've found, or dassies or hyraxes we've found. And then I've seen, I saw one feeding on rats in a grassy field. So they're definitely just sort of capitalizing on whatever they can. They're very opportunistic predators. Are these caracals like right in the city, like proper, or are they like on in like more like suburban neighborhoods in the countryside around it? Um, they are in both. So I'm actually looking up the, the pop. Population size of Cape Town. It has over 3 million people. So what's interesting about this area is that there is this peninsula, which includes um, iconic landmarks 
like Table Mountain, um, which is well known in South Africa. I did not know about Table Mountain until I came here, but um, it extends. So that's in the northern part of my primary study area. And then it extends south into the Cape of Good Hope, which, of course, most people know what that is. And it creates this peninsula. And then the city isolates that peninsula with a dense matrix of urban development that includes high density, what we call here informal settlements, but what um, would probably be thought of as shanty towns or slums. And it's just miles and miles and miles of those informal settlements that isolate the peninsula. And um, it's so, and then there's, um, in certain pockets of the peninsula, there is some suburban type neighborhoods. And then there is in the northern section, dense urban and sort of industrial and commercial areas, as well as re residential that abut directly um, the, the park. And that's all on the eastern side. And then on the western side of the peninsula is primarily just undeveloped areas and coastline. And so it's sort of in some ways similar to the Los Angeles study area where I was working, where one side of the available habitat was bordered by the ocean. So that's an absolute barrier for those animals. In terms of classifying animals, there are some animals that use little strips of habitat that remain fragmented um, in between those informal settlements. And we just radio collared two of those animals, and it's going to be really interesting to track their movements because that would be the highest density populations in the city are those settlements. And this is the this is an area where it goes on for miles and miles, like 30 kilometers in in width. Um, and I don't know I don't know how far it spans from north to south, but um, it is a very large area. And then we have seen animals primarily staying in the national park, which is the Table Mountain National Park, um, but venturing into urban areas. So crossing a major freeway multiple times or moving through little green belts, very narrow green belts that remain um, in urban, urban areas so that they use sort of green spaces that remain. Like for example, I have a cat that lives primarily in a vineyard. And it's like this extremely small area that he lives in. And occasionally he uses this green belt that connects that property through a residential area into the national park proper. And so occasionally he ventures into the national park, he's there for a couple days and then he goes right back to that vineyard. And so it is, um, there are some, what you would call very urban areas animals and then there's animals that I think capitalize on the urban edge is more what you would say but aren't necessarily only sticking close to the urban edge. Do you think there's any gene flow between the cats around Cape Town and like the uh, um, on the other side? We speculate that they are absolutely isolated by the urban urban areas but um, you know that has yet to be <laughs> assessed in a quantitative way. If you were out and about in like the fringes of Cape Town, what's the chances of you seeing a caracal? 
Um, like most elusive wild cats, not high. <laughs> but I mean, I get regular reported sightings that are valid, um, but I do believe them. Um, so there's areas here where they seem to have a lot of activity moving through certain areas. And those areas happen to be very disturbed habitats that are large, open, grassy areas. And so, especially in those regions, people have reported seeing caracals. And at first I thought it was just um, biased opportunity because there's a lot of human activity there and there's the low lying vegetation and open grassy areas where you just have better visibility. But in looking at the GPS data for my animals now that I've radio collared in various parts of Table Mountain, it's really interesting because actually that's where we see the most activity. Um, but so I, I think it may be missed opportunity of seeing one in terms of just the vegetation and how many people are there. But as well, they do seem to really like those areas. But um, when people ask me, where can I go to see a caracal? I say, I don't know, why don't you tell me? Yeah. <laughs> Because I have been out, you know, so many hours in the fields trying to study them. And I've seen one not inside one of my cages. Like, I think it, I've counted maybe five times. And I know where they go. And, you know, I'm out there so many hours. And I'm able to track them. But I hardly ever see one not in a cage. Yep. How folks feel about having caracals around them? Are they uh, – do they even know? Or if they know, are they upset? Or do they think it's a blessing to have this cool creature like so close to them? Um, so what's interesting is that in, um, in more rural areas, caracals are a pest species um, or people consider them pests because there's a lot of um, livestock agriculture and – Carnivores are known to take livestock. Um, they're not the only species responsible, but they're heavily persecuted outside of urban areas. But, um, and the extent to which they persist in urban areas in South Africa and other areas, uh, other countries isn't really known. But um, around Cape Town, what I have found is that people frequently revere the animals and there, you know, there's a history of a lot of wildness and wild spaces and wild species that are super charismatic. And so I think that the caracals in the Cape Town area represent wildness that remains despite intense urban development and habitat modification. And I've had a lot of feedback from some of my permitting agencies. And like I work with Sand Parks, um, which is the equivalent to the National Park Service. And they tell me that people are just will, are so curious about caracals and they'll come to, you know, people that work in the parks with sand parks and ask, where can we see caracals and what's going on with the study? And so um, I think they're one of the species that people are most interested in in my study area. And um, but that isn't to say that everyone appreciates them like uh, coyotes, they are known to feed on domestic cats, and they're frequently um, accused of feeding on them. I don't; they're not the only ones, I'm sure, that are feeding on people's cats. But we have documented that it does occur. Um, and so, in some, I hear some people talking about them the same way I would hear people in Los Angeles talking about coyotes. 
you know, it's just, it's also, you know, you just get a mixed bag of people's appreciation for wildlife, even when they live in areas that are directly adjacent to these natural spaces. And presumably they enjoy those natural spaces, but they just don't want, you know, everything that comes with it. I actually captured a honey badger in one of my traps. And up until that point, it was thought that there's no honey badgers in the peninsula. And so, and we got video footage of it. The animal actually broke out of my trap because they're super strong and the traps were not built for honey badgers. But luckily I had a camera that was near the trap so I could see what happened. And so it's like super exciting news that there's a honey badger that has been documented in the peninsula. And it's, it's sparked a lot of interest, not only with the general public, but also with sand parks. And so, I actually posted on Facebook, on the project Facebook page that we had documented this honey badger and I showed a video of it. And over 40,000 people viewed that post in a week. People are super excited about the wildlife that remains in this park so close to Cape Town. And I, you know, I regularly have posts about the caracals as well that get thousands of views. And so, it really is remarkable a remarkable demonstration of how much interest there is about the wildlife here. You know, like the, the you know the host of city introduced species that most cities have are they like is that a big part of their diet too, or are they mostly eating like animals that would be in a you know in that area in wild conditions anyway? Um, so actually, the diet study is yielding some really interesting results. So. What's been really interesting and kind of unexpected for me is that most of when we identify prey at these GPS clusters, which we call kill sites, um, most of the those kill sites where we find prey remains are within 100 meters of the urban edge. And so what that suggests to me is that these animals are moving in closer to the urban edge to feed. And so and other data that suggests this might be happening includes that um, if you look at the average distance an adult caracal's GPS locations are from the urban edge, it's 600 meters. And yet they're coming in within 100 meters most frequently to find prey and, and feed on prey. And this sort of fits with other um, theories about what happens at the urban edge, and that is that that modified landscape may actually increase resource abundance in certain areas. And by resources, I mean prey. And so I think that the caracals are capitalizing on that. And what we see here is Increased, it appears that there's increased rodent activity, and there would be, you know, if, if there's invasive rats that are persisting at the urban interface or within urban areas. And then, you know, there's squirrels that are introduced and invasive. But as well, there's a lot of bird species that are extremely abundant at the urban edge that include guinea fowl and um, what they call hottydaws, which are a type of a species of ibis. So, and we find those species at a number, a lot of our kill sites. And we've also seen like Egyptian geese, which are a major um, problem here in terms of um, unnaturally abundant populations and that persist year round. So 
it does seem like they are actually taking advantage and capitalizing on altered resource abundance that is at that modified urban edge. So one of the things that I think is interesting here is that like looking at the rat poison exposure in bobcats, one of the things that uh, I found with that study is in terms of risk factors for exposure, it seems like the more affluent areas um, lead to greater ecological risk and greater contamination in the environment with the rat poisons at least. And what I suspect is going on here is actually the opposite, that it is those really high density, extremely poor areas um, that have so many problems and because of the high density human settlements and very little, um, very poorly constructed homes and poor resources in terms of containing food and, and water and whatnot, um, that it's supporting probably higher rodent populations, for example, that they need to use more poisons to try to control. And so I think there is a spill off of pesticides, not just rat poisons, but probably other things as well from those extremely poor areas into adjacent natural areas. And what's also been interesting for me to see here is that a lot of the informal settlements are near or in wetland areas. So the way I see it is that those areas perhaps have been deemed marginal human habitat and that's where, so that's where the settlements are placed. But those areas are extremely resource rich for wildlife. So marginal human habitat, but really excellent wildlife habitat. And so these animals will preferentially, at least the caracals, use those areas. And there's a lot of activity in those areas because of the resource abundance, but it might be, you know, richly resourceful, but also highly toxic because of the human habitation that's around it and that tends to be around those resource-rich areas for wildlife. I, one thing I've come to appreciate in being here is trying to understand the trickle-down effect of social issues on wildlife and to think about, so the reason the peninsula is isolated is because, largely because of those high-density informal settlements. And that is purely a social issue that really arose um, in terms of isolation about 30 years ago. And to think about, okay, a social issue has trickle down impacts possibly to affect even the genetics of populations is just been fascinating for me to think about. And then as well, if it's compounding sort of disease issues and pesticide issues, how are those are those consequences that may be um, sort of magnified in extremely poor areas, how are those consequences potentially synergistically interacting to affect wildlife in a more profound way than each factor individually? You know, I didn't really think about that before I came, but I think it is one of the more interesting things, at least for me to think about here, is social issues trickling down to profound fundamental level impacts on wildlife populations. That's it. Where do we start? <laughs> you start at the ear tufts. <laughs> yeah, and, and also, in the meantime, we've been joined by... Hello, Mike McGraw's here. Mike McGraw's eating some pizza and cheese fries right now. Yeah. <laughs> Mike McGraw, ecologist, 
wildlife biologist. Wildlife biologist and frequent podcast. Adjunct professor. Host. So then where do we... Sexy beast. <laughs> Speaking of sexy beasts, we're talking about the Caracals. Oh, mm, a sexy beast indeed. You want a charismatic mesofauna, if it's not quite mega. You really don't make a cat more attractive than that. Yeah. I mean, I, don't I, don't know, I was looking at that carnivore before, more attractive than that. Go with the Palawan stink badger. <laughs> Thing. Yeah. <laughs> Please tell me it's near a city so we can talk about it. Palawan stink badger. It exists. <laughs> oh my goodness. We'll be back for you, my friends. <laughs> well, I mean, we, we see the same issues with proximity of certain land uses to wetlands. Yeah. Right? And then, you know, you get wetlands that. Where are all the refineries? Where are all the. The tanker right. fields, where's yeah, where's the airports? It's yeah, a lot there. of the older cities put most of their low income right along the rivers and in the and the lowland areas. One of the things she hits on is uh, the is sort of the intersection of poverty and sort of access to wildlife, and also that a lot of the research that we see on urban, I mean, probably research on wildlife in general, but at least research on urban wildlife is from wealthier countries. I mean, like you find in, in I'll start with Australia, so we're not all in part of the world, but still Australia, North America, Europe is where you see maybe Japan, but I can't find it that I can read. But a lot of research on urban wildlife in, in sort of first world countries, even though the mega cities of the world are everywhere, are, are going everywhere else. Yeah. I mean, huge cities in Africa, huge cities in Asia, throughout Asia, South America, where if you want to look for the numbers of people living with wildlife in the city, I mean, the big numbers are, aren't, aren't just, you know, New York and London. They're like Lagos and, I don't know, Kinshasa and Mumbai. Well, another thing, yeah, is for this, like Brazil, you can't really say they're developing anymore. They're pretty much, they're a developed country. And, and when I was down there, the students in the university, the undergraduate students were doing primary research because like the nest of basic birds, you know, like the common birds have never been Still formally, not described. Yeah, formally described. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's a country with 1,800 birds. And, and some of that research is done in like urban areas because it's right on their campus, but they don't even think about it like that. In our urban, or our, our World Sparrow Day conversation, one of the things Tony was talking about with uh, researcher Jessica Burnett, how even in, I mean, this, we're talking urban areas, um, Philly birders they're attracted to, they study, and they value the birds of the, the parklands and the hot spots. Um, some of that can be like, you know, the Northeast Wastewater Treatment Facility, which is not in a very nice neighborhood, I guess you'd say. It's like sort of just industrial. Um, but it's also like, I mean, Wissahickon, the wildlife refuges, like, yeah. they're, they're very, they're different worlds from the neighborhoods right around them. And the neighbors around them might be kind of nice. People aren't studying the birds of um, of Strawberry Mansion, like outside the reservoir. <laughs> you know, they're studying they're studying in the, the nice little island of the reservoir. They're not studying like two blocks in. I yeah. submit an eBird checklist for every time I'm standing waiting for the L up on the platform. Yes. Yeah. So it's like urban. I figure that's like we need some of that data from the urban core that's not in the parks. And yeah, from like great. our office in Frankfurt, like this big brick, you know, old mill factory building. 
I'm getting all the birds that I'm seeing there. And it's like, it's a it's a win when you have a bird like, you know, we have a bald eagle go by, but it's even a win just to see like a crow every now and then that you don't typically have every day. So yeah. Cool. yeah, sure. When did you, you have a lot of swifts there and the swifts? Yeah, we got we had swifts. Uh, you know, I started this in like August. Okay. Of this past year, and so I'm, I'm excited to see what the spring looks like. I just we just got our first cardinal like a couple weeks ago. It's like that's the first cardinal for yeah. the little die work. Ow! Citizen science. Next up, um, it's a short uh, interview with a Barcelona researcher. Um, I had been on the board. Barcelona. Barcelona. No, I know I can't stand that. I I learned Spanish, Latin American Spanish. I just can't do that. I was I read about this. In feral cities, apparently there's a lot of boar in Berlin, um, and uh, it's kind of like the thing. They're kind of like deer here, like where white-tailed deer in the states, right, or at least where they range in the states or in Canada, like come out and they'll they'll like eat up your hostas in your garden. Um, they'll like over over browse the park and like they'll they'll get in car accidents with. Well, they're not in the car, but you'll get in car accidents with them. We have that kind of problem with deer. It's kind of like that's what happens, I guess, with like boars in other cities where they're native is that they're the kind of thing that will root up your garden or like go through your trash and, and get in car accidents. Jarrah's getting my truffles. He has a garden and it's only hostas and truffles. <laughs> and you thought it was safe. Yeah, this is going to be the greatest garden ever. My name is Sean Cahill and I'm a biologist and uh, working here in a park beside uh, Barcelona called Barcelona Mountains uh, Natural Park. Basically the park is, is kind of situated in sort of right in the middle of the Barcelona metropolitan area and it's roughly about 10 miles in length by about five or six miles in, in width and it's um, a sort of low mountainous uh, area the highest point about I'd say 500 meters or so and it's it's mostly covered in Mediterranean woodland pine woodland and oak Mediterranean oak with sort of scrub areas mostly on the on the on the outskirts of it so it's it's pretty dense vegetation in, in for the most part it's it's pretty compact urban area right around the, the 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 periphery of the park and there's quite large infrastructure and so on so it's it's to a large extent it's isolated from other sort of woodland areas in the region yeah so tell me about the boar population there well they're quite abundant now in the last few years i'd say that the densities are usually about 10 per square kilometer so we'd have an estimated population of close to a thousand boar in the park um but the population has grown over the last 20, 25 years or so. I mean, up, up until about 30 years ago, it was a relatively scarce species here. It's, it's, it's an overall trend, really, in, in many countries in Europe, basically responding to changes in the landscape, in society as well, you know. So traditional farming has been abandoned and many areas of land, uh, the forest has recovered. So the wildlife has, has kind of come back and, uh, and many of these ungulate populations have, have increased. Well, this sort of dense vegetation uh, in the park, in many areas, it's it's almost in direct contact with built-up uh, urban areas. So, in some cases, it's it's uh, it's it's quite easy to make the shift uh, from the from their own natural habitat to the to the urban area itself. You know, but often it's it's something in the urban area that actually attracts them there. For example, in the summer, it can be uh, difficult for them to find food in in, in the natural woodlands 
whereas in these urban areas there can be, for example, irrigated grassy areas and parks uh, or, or, or garbage that's left out uh, and so on, and, and they, they get attracted to looking for, for these resources here. Um, habituation largely largely arises basically when 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 um, you know people are they have initial contacts maybe with boar maybe in their gardens or or in public parks and uh, often they're leaving food out directly for for these animals or maybe they've come to a house looking for food that's left out for their for their pets um, so over time the boars kind of lose their fear of the, of the people and the people lose their fear of, of boars and 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 even feed them directly and encourage them you know the behavior of the boars is totally different when you if you go into the woodlands themselves it's quite difficult to find or to see a boar and and usually if, if they detect you they'll run away straight away whereas boar that have become habituated to people in in urban areas they'll often act, actively seek out people and and try and get food from them which is becoming a bit of a nuisance uh, in some areas you know they're big enough animals. They're they're smaller maybe than wild boar in other areas of say central and northern Europe. Uh, so you know I think the Mediterranean boar generally tend to be tend to be slightly smaller. Um, but what we found is that the boar in the urban areas are especially the females they're, they're they're about a third heavier than than the boars in the in the, in the woodlands because they're uh, they're actually overfed in comparison. <laughs> okay, so they're being fattened up by exactly, suburbia, by, exactly. by the urban areas. So if the authorities get called for a habituated boar, um, what happens to the boar? That's kind of what happens. Uh, initially, uh, maybe people, uh, you know, it's a kind of a novelty and uh, they encourage them, but after the time they realize that it can become a nuisance of these animals around and they are potentially dangerous. And as you say, after time, they tend to lose their fear of people. So they go from maybe just waiting to see if somebody gives them food to actually actively trying to, to take food maybe out of somebody's hand, you know. Usually people end up complaining and, and, and calling the authorities. So if boar are causing problems, then in urban areas, usually uh, they're, they're captured using using anesthetic darts as, a, as, as the usual method, and then they're euthanized. Initially, in the, when, when the problem started initially, we tried to relocate some of these animals, but uh, they, they just come back very quickly to the same streets that, they, that they're giving the problems to. Initially, uh, you know, a lot of people here, um, uh, wildlife managers and so on, uh, we kind of uh, had a had feeling that, you know, this was something peculiar or strange about, about Colzarola. And, you know, when we, we were kind of looking for other, other experiences, there, there wasn't actually very much published in the literature on, on the problems that we were having. But when we started to look around more in, in media and internet and so on, uh, we, we realized that you know other places were having similar problems and, and it was a growing problem. And so it was interesting, especially to see. I know in North America, urban deer have have uh, been an issue for a longer period of time, but in Europe, it's it's mostly been wild boar, you know. But we were finding that that it was mostly boar that were causing problems in urban areas. But also beyond Europe, I mean, in Asia and as well in in, in America, we're finding increasing uh, cases. I, I suppose in Europe, the classic uh, city is, is Berlin, which has had problems now, I'd say, for more than 30 years. But it, it's still a relatively recent phenomenon, but, but seems to be growing, yeah. The key is, is, is to think of solutions rather than a single solution to general uh, management strategy is to try and control wild boar populations in, in, in the outlying areas. 
but sometimes hunting can be difficult uh, within an urban context. Uh, the key is, is, is conflict management rather than just wild boar management. So you need to try and mitigate the problems that, that are, are being caused and not just to focus on, on reducing wild boar numbers, on reducing conflicts, you know. So, so the strategy they can include things like just uh, avoiding people feeding them, the animals and, and trying not to encourage them into these areas. Uh, fencing can be useful in some situations. In our areas, one of the big problems are, are garbage containers. So you have, to, you have to basically redesign garbage containers so the wild boar can't, can't get access to, to rubbish that's been thrown out and so on. It's not easy. Uh, I think uh, actual habitat management is, is going to be needed in some situations as well. And at the end of the day, the key uh, element that, that draws them into these urban areas is, at least for wild boar, it's, it's food. And that's also important here for, as I said, these matriarchal groups. Uh, if they have access to artificial food, the, the survival of young increases and the, their Fertility increases, uh, so this it's, it's just a vicious circle, and the population increases even faster. You know. Did you want to spoon with a boar, bear, and a raccoon? I don't know about boars. <laughs> you know, I don't know what their fur is like. It's just bristles. Bristles. I like I like yeah, I like yeah. some pulled pork, and I might. <laughs> you know, what I mean, I might feel bad and give that up. Yeah. Robin, with you're bringing up uh, our expanding wild feral boar problem right right we in america we have you know feral hogs in the south that are yet to be pretty notorious for being destructive and dangerous and you know up in the the east we've got our white-tailed deer that we're you know dealing with and that's kind of a nuisance for us and i can only imagine we were talking about having something that's now taking that a step further where it's an omnivore and it'll eat you know anything that it can grab and all our lovely little turtles and anything like that. Exotic, invasive. So we might as well wrap up now. One last time, please like us on your favorite podcasting software. Put a review up. This will help other people find us. Tweet at us at, at HerbWildlifeCast. Write us an email at UrbanWildlifeCast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and, and like us there. And tell us what you're checking out. Like if you're on your block and you're looking at a wild boar, don't just run. <laughs> Stop and record about it on your phone. Or give us a call at 267-603-3219. Again, 267-603-3219. Or record something on your cell phone and get in touch with us and we'll get that on the podcast. I'll also say if you are... Beyond just the little audio postcard or the wildlife bling. Wildlife bling. <laughs> uh, aside from just if the wildlife. You guys wildlife... can only see Tony's face when he says it. There's such a look of satisfaction. Uh, aside from just that, if you're doing a study, if you're a postdoc or a grad student who just wants someone to care about your research. Um, we care. Because your, your girlfriend or boyfriend is sick of hearing about it. Your parents don't know what the hell you're doing with your life. Give us a call, and we want to hear about it, because we love you and your work. Wildlife <laughs> So, with that... <laughs> Much love.
Hey there, Urban Wildlife Podcast. Are we recording on your cell phone? This is Robin. I'm Tony. Mr. Wildlife Lang. I'm Katrina. And Nick. This is Damon. We are out here at Aubrey Arboretum around 8 o'clock. The Arboretum. Listening for Eastern Whippoorwill. Not just a, not just listening. Goat sucker. It's a goat sucker. We're not just listening. We, and we saw one too. We saw two. Seeing and saw one. And hearing some duetting. And it's awesome. It's a full moon. It's a beautiful night. With some beautiful people. Beautiful people. We're in the middle of Germantown in Philadelphia. Some kids just finished up a ball game across the way there. We heard the ice cream truck going by about ten minutes ago. And even though it is four twenty. We did not imagine these birds. We're not. <laughs> we're not lit. We're quite. These are Straight legit, edge. legit yeah. birds. <laughs> Straight edge. Philly whips. Peace. Nice. With the. I wonder if the honey badger with that famous video now with Randall narrating it is that part of the <laughs> it is pretty amazing it is pretty uh, amazing yeah yeah that's a cool video I like it <laughs>